What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, welcome everybody. This is the first Kodiak Shack podcast, and uh, my friend here, Julian from Crowdbotics Defense, is joining us to talk a little uh, innovation, talk, talk a little uh, sibbers, and then uh, talk a little BS, actually. So, uh, Julian, welcome to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, so uh, so where were you the other day? You went uh, to some event? Yeah, so it's it's AFM's uh, modeling and simulation. Um, they we did calling it a conference might be too much. It's like a three day conference, but really just like a workshop. It's like I don't know, 50, 60, 70 people. Um, I would say pretty evenly split between contractors and uh, active duty people. Um, I I think it was supposed to be aimed at FTUs. So bear was there um, from Seymour, uh, Forge Hansen was there from Seymour, a um, couple of different FTU guys I got to talk to, Decoy from Holloman was there, um, but then there were a ton of SAIC people, uh, a couple of Booz Allen people, a bunch of like different offices I'd never heard of within the Air Force trying to do data and modeling and simulation and stuff, and it wasn't so much about modeling and simulation as I thought, it was much more about training and data, just like data pipelines, data lake. Uh, AFRL was heavily there. Obviously, Wink Bennett spoke um, at length about some projects they've got. So, um, yeah, kind of, I would say a bittersweet overall lesson learned or kind of message there. There was a lot of frustration around why why are things so behind? Why can't we get a grip on data and start like using it, sharing it? I didn't realize, I kind of came out of it. One of the biggest lessons I learned was uh, first of all, the IP, the instructor pilot's time might be the most valuable currency in the entire FTU. It's insane to me how much pressure is put on the IP. It's like, th- this is the bottleneck for all of the big problems like, oh, there's a p- pilot shortage or we can't like these, these pilots aren't proficient enough. You're just making it the next guy's problem. 
it's pretty much all on the IP. Yeah, it is. And that's, and that's the tough part because at least obviously, uh, the people who haven't listened to the intro, my background is F-16s for about nine years, instructor pilot for about, uh, five or six of those years. Um, but yeah, it's, it is tough because so much of what the air force gets done is due to just the sheer will and effort of the people in the organization. So there's not much, um, not much that's been streamlined, not much that's actually efficient. It's just sheer force of will that we will achieve our objective. And uh, so production of pilots, we have our biggest problem or their biggest problem now uh, that I've separated is that they, the bottleneck really isn't at the FTU level. The bottleneck is at the pilot training level. Before you get to the FTU or the formal training course uh, at the F-16, the Strike Eagle, wherever, the pilot training is the LIMFAC. So it's the, you know, T6s to T38s to IFF, then to the FTU. Uh, the FTUs are obviously max performing right now. Uh, but what we're running into is a problem actually getting people to the FTU who are actually proficient enough uh, to be successful. So yeah, that's that's tough. And I think uh, obvi- for those who don't know, Julie and I have, have worked together, together in the past. Uh, so we know each other pretty well. And, and we've talked about that uh, a lot is the DOD doesn't move as fast as a lot of other organizations or industries. Uh, it's very difficult to get them to uh, be as streamlined or keep up with the innovation that's happening outside, which can get costly and difficult for other companies. Uh, before we go too much further, uh, Julian, just give us a quick rundown, kind of your company, your background, just so people kind of know who they're listening to. Totally. Yeah, so pretty much startups, Silicon Valley startups, uh, my background. I was involved in a startup in college that got a little bit of notoriety from the right people um, in the Bay Area. And so after college, went to a couple of different startups uh, around the Bay Area um, and eventually settled on this one. Um, For the last five years, I've been working at Crowdbotics. Uh, We're based in Berkeley. And about three years ago, we were kind of told, advised by friends of friends to get into the DOD, to try to work with the Air Force. Our first uh, inroad was with Kessel Run. Um, It's like a software shop in uh, Boston. And so we did a fit, what's called a phase one SIBR. It's like a small business innovation reward, I think reward, uh, through a group within the Air Force called AFWorks. Um, and basically they are, for your listeners who are unfamiliar, um, trying to speed up innovation from the private sector, trying to like steal some of the private sector stuff that is moving quickly, copy that over where it's applicable to the Air Force. So that's an awesome goal and it is a good program overall. Um, our Sibra with Kessel Run didn't really go anywhere, but it did introduce us to the right people and eventually we met a guy at Seymour Johnson with the Strike Eagles who had a data problem. He recognized a kind of a problem in the process of handling all of this jet data. And so we entered into a Sibber, what's called a Sibber phase two. So Sibber phase one is like short term, three months, I think, research and development only. Uh, Sibber phase two is about a year. And that is for actually building an MVP, a minimum viable, an actual product, a proof of concept product, a minimum viable product. Um, so that is what we're wrapping up right now. We, we built the product with uh, Seymour Johnson in collaboration with them. Basically, what the product does is it takes the 
jet data and turns it into something that's useful for anyone who's not a data scientist, whether that's the actual student pilot flying the sortie or the instructor pilot or someone else on base who gives a shit, whatever anyone wants to do with it. You can visualize the data and you can assess. What I think is really cool that we do is we score anything that they attempted. So if the pilot went up there and he tried to do XY maneuver, we recognize that maneuver is what was attempted based on like parameters in the data, the approach, kind of the couple of seconds before, where were they, what was the position before he started or he or she started, and then how well did they stick to kind of the perfect version of that maneuver. And so all that stuff is like pretty hard to suss out from what I understand if you go the conventional methodology, especially if you are talking about like a single seat aircraft, it's really difficult to just like figure out what the pilot was up to. And then of course to score that, to coach that, to teach that um, is, is pretty difficult if you have limited visibility. Um, so that's what we're working on. Um, we think it's a step in the right direction for at least the instructor-student relationship to have a better handle on what's going on, have kind of a record. Um, actually, that leads me to another point from this AFMS thing. It, it seems like a huge problem is just knowledge share. And it's not just about this stuff, like the individual pilot performance, anything. Like we were talking about the Seymour Johnson guys have a pretty sweet VR lab set up that they kind of just went out and did on their own. It's very much in a silo. They didn't have really any like Magcom. It didn't come top down. It's not widespread. They like, they got lucky. They have a guy there on base who is out of the gaming industry and he like ended up building a lot of it himself. And they just kind of luck of the draw, like ended up with a sweet VR lab. And I was asking did you like post, is there anywhere, like, is there a Reddit? Is there like an Air Force Reddit or something for you to post, hey, any other FTUs around the country or anyone or anywhere else where this is applicable? Here's even just the unclassified hardware that like, here's the yoke that we bought for these sleds or like, here's the VR goggles that we set up. Like maybe here's the software package that we're using, but not even like that deep, like, just even the hardware and no, that you pretty much have to text a buddy from the academy to find out like what they did. Well, and that's, so you hit a lot of good points that, that kind of are, are the uh, reason this podcast became reality. Uh, but yeah, they actually did 2019. Uh, they threw down, they're called uh, ITDs or common ITDs uh, with a common set of hardware purchase to streamline the acquisition of it. Uh, which is great because I think that's exactly the solution we need is, hey, uh, what what do we buy? I'm at I'm at zero. Get me to 100. And the, the purchase list was really nice to have, uh, but it never got updated or I never got an updated one from 2019. And obviously the following years were kind of hectic for everybody. But the reality is uh, then you go back to buy all these things later and not everything is transferable. Obviously the F-16 is going to need different stick and throttle or you're going to use a universal one and then we're going to have negative transfer uh, because you're you're hitting the wrong buttons to do the right thing and then you get in the plane and it's different buttons to do the same thing. Uh, so some of that is an issue, but there's also issues where Seymour Johnson and DM actually have VR labs, but Holloman actually surprisingly has a ton 
of what are called UTDs. I don't know what the acronym stands for, uh, but think a uh, 180, uh, there's so many acronyms, you can't keep track of all of them. Uh, but it's a 180 degree field of view. So it's pretty much all of your instantaneous field of view and peripheral uh, in a full scale cockpit that's classified and their utilization is, is sub 50%. So if someone wants to hop in a sim at Holloman on any given day, they probably can. And that's, that's why Holloman really didn't pursue the VR lab as aggressively because we didn't have the same problem set. And that's what I really like about innovation because so much of what happens, which is understandable because the Air Force and the DOD are, are massive and they can't do everything specifically for every base. Innovation allows you to, to pick and choose and say, I want that. I want debriefed analytics. I don't need a VR lab. I want an automated scheduler. And you can kind of put your effort and your money um, towards those things. So, and just like you said, hey, is there a Reddit? Is there any way other than just texting a friend or cold calling another Air Force base as a military member? Uh, there wasn't that I knew of. You could go on AFWorks website and they actually have a list of every single one of their um, SIBRs that are currently active, but it's literally thousands. So you yeah. could just, you know, you can filter a little bit, but overall, you know, I was at Holloman. Luke Air Force Base is the other uh, active duty F-16 uh, FTU or training course, B course, as some people call it. Uh, and I didn't know unless I gave them a call or went over there to find out what they were working on. And that's not a hit on them. They, just like you said, IPs are, are slammed. They are always busy. So the reality that they're going to be busy as an IP, they're going to run their whole innovation shop, and then they're going to call me at Holloman and say, hey, do you want, what do you want to participate in? That's an unrealistic expectation, and I yeah. get that. Uh, but that's what I hope this podcast becomes. It becomes a, a space where people can then go to get information about programs and companies that they aren't aware of. Or uh, we actually have the Stinger Walk, who is the um, Spark Cell lead at Luke, is going to be on the podcast. So he's going to talk about what they're winning at, where they're kind of seeing some shortcomings in their innovation game. Uh, so then companies who have the solutions that Stinger is, lo are, is looking for can then go uh, and uh, contact him and say, hey, we have the solution. We have that answer to the to problem you said. Uh, so that's what I'm kind of hoping this, this podcast becomes in the long term. Uh, in the near term, I'm just happy to kind of chill with some friends and, and talk innovation because it, is it is a pretty cool space. Julian, before we, we got going, you said you watched Top Gun Maverick. What'd you think? Yeah, Top Gun Maverick definitely renewed any fears I had about uh, the DOD being too slow to keep up with the industry. I'm all in again. I'm 100% uh, <laughs> back in. I love the country. I love the United States, whatever we're doing. I love Tom Cruise. Yeah, no, I loved it. I thought it rocked. I really liked the first one, even though it's corny. Um, Tom Cruise obviously is like a, maybe a little bit of a nut, but uh, man, I've got such a soft spot in my heart for him. He's so badass. It's crazy how bad. I heard that he like did a bunch of it himself to whatever, you know, he's like allowed to. And then he does fly. Apparently he's like actually a pilot in his own time. Um, yeah, I thought it rocked. I absolutely loved it. The, obviously the cool part, the coolest parts were the like just jet footage, them flying around low, any kind of low uh altitude flying high speed low altitude is uh that gets me every time any of that footage is always sweet 
Yeah, I think which I mean y'all do right. I mean, you you flown oh, through yeah. like canyons and stuff. Yeah, Holloman was actually great for that where I was last uh, because they had mountain range under the airspace, which when you're trying to fight down really low, uh, you can't really do because the mountain range. But then when you're trying to fly low, it gives you a lot to fly around. So it was a good complement of nice, long, flat stretches and then some mountains. So you can get real low uh, depending on your qual. Uh, and your aircraft, you could be qualified anywhere from 500, 300, or 100 feet above gr- above Damn. the ground or AGL. Yeah, 100 is so low. Yeah, I've uh, I've never been there. I don't really want to be there. Uh, but the the yeah, 300 feet was my lowest qual, and it seemed like a happy medium. It seemed like a a height above the ground. I mean, you're going 500 and some miles an hour, so you're cooking. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it was it was quick. You were uh, you were definitely paying attention to what was ahead of you and making sure you had some blue sky right in front of you. But yeah, I think, I think the, the best part about what he did with Top Gun Maverick was the, the way that he approached it. He said, Hey, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. We're going to video, we're going to get shots from the back seat. We're going to fly in this jet. And then he actually made all of the actors who were going to be uh, in the jets go through effectively an upgrade. So they started small, just like the Air Force does. And they, you know, hey, train in the the simple stuff, slow and steady, kind of walk up in the civilian type aircraft uh, and get more and more aerobatics and uh, higher G and then move into the F-18. So yeah, I I thought they did a great job with that because being able to actually watch the movie and then see when they pull G's, kind of their faces, you know, yeah. kind of get compressed down and you're like, oh, they're, they're legit pulling G's. Like get the cons over the wings and the F-18. It was, it was cool. I mean, it was definitely a good, the, the visuals were great. The story was good. The, uh, I think they leaned just enough on the nostalgia of the first one, yeah. but then created their own new story, you know? Yeah. As yeah, a was civilian, some, it was sorry. Go ahead. Oh no no no! F- feel free. I'll I'll read. As a civilian, it. it was tough for me to suss out like exactly what was unrealistic and what was realistic. Uh, the one one thing that did jump off the page to me, and obviously it's like uh, pretty sweet for Hollywood, but like they're they're willy nilly with the. I think they ejected like six or seven times throughout the movie, and I was like, I was talking to my friend afterwards, and I was like, I don't. I think that's real. I'm not sure, but I think that's crazy unrealistic. I don't think you can eject like more than once in your career. I think it's like a life-threatening, damaging process, right? So it, it definitely used to be. I mean, guys that ejected in the F4 back in the day, because, I mean, the, the tech wasn't there, you know. The, they just weren't, uh, they just didn't, it wasn't as safe. So the F4 would really uh, hurt guys because the the time. But now ejection seats have gotten better. I still don't think you would eject that many times because uh, yeah. it's still a significant, if nothing else, emotional event, but physical and emotional event. Uh, so yeah, so the the uh, complement of ejections and then uh, and you know ejecting at I don't know Mach ten plus yeah. is uh, <laughs> granted he's probably really high, so there's not much atmosphere up there. But uh, yeah, I, I think that would have worked out slightly worse for him. But that's How speculation. The- I don't know. How realistic was the beginning where he's doing like the, I don't know, is it like a, it's supposed to be like a, a new SR-71 Blackbird or something where he's doing the like Yeah, so, run? I mean, 
So that's that's kind of the the game right now is hypersonic, you know. So getting above Mach five is technically hypersonic, I believe. I am not an engineer. Uh, I am a uh, geography major who uh, skated through college <laughs> just trying to fly fighters. So, uh, but yeah, my understanding is uh, once you break Mach five, you're hypersonic, uh, and then Mach ten is obviously well above that. Um, I assume we're definitely working, or they're definitely working on it. I don't know in what how close we are to anything like that it was uh open source i saw it i forgot where but the uh they had a, a hypersonic uh vehicle on the uh shoot what is it the they have a site out at, near holloman that does uh the sled that's what it is so there's a sled track that they'll do high speed stuff they'll test out a lot of stuff and apparently they did a test on there uh, so, I mean, we're, we're definitely working on it. That's definitely the, a, a problem because when you start getting the hypersonic world and you can live in there, uh, you go places real quick, obviously. Uh, and then in addition to that, you uh, be targeting you is very, very difficult because you're moving yeah. very, very fast. Uh, yeah, one of the things that, it, that kind of made me chuckle, uh, which again, it's it's dumb and it doesn't matter to anyone other than a fighter pilot who has drawn a ton of lines uh, in his life. Uh, and when I say drawing lines, we'll go out and fly, fly BFM or dogfighting, however you want to refer, refer to it. And sometimes the stuff doesn't work. The lines don't come up. The, the GPS tracking doesn't work well. So you are literally watching the picture of the HUD and the degrees of heading change. And then you are drawing that using your mock and the time you had that has elapsed. So uh, not to talk any specifics, but say your turn circle on an average day, uh, which is the center point and your jet will turn uh, about that, uh, is call it three to 6,000 feet, depending on altitude and G and airspeed. Uh, and so he's going Mach, what, eight or nine at the time of the movie. And then he just like flips a quick U and turns back the other <laughs> direction before. And like, I just started laughing because... You know, I, I would assume I've never been Mach nine, uh, but I assume that turn circle would be I don't know, like the size of a, a good size hundred miles. Know? Like, <laughs> oh yeah, at least like that's that's what I'm saying. Like your his speed is so high that even if he's turning a degree per second, he's covering so much ground because you think the speed of sound, you're going ten miles a minute. Damn. And so you're like, well, that's fast. If I'm going Mach one. If I'm going Mach 9. Wait, 10 miles a minute. Or 10, 10 miles a minute? 10 miles, shoot, I knew this. Yeah, it should be because you're going. We need Rogan. Uh, we need like a. Yeah, exactly. Jamie. Yeah, where is Jamie, Jamie? Look that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either way, we'll edit that out. But the, uh, but yeah, you're going, I think it's 10 miles a minute. Doesn't matter. Doesn't um, matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you're going quick. And so you're going to be covering a lot of ground. Um, in that in that time in that turn, so even even doing an aggressive turn, you're still covering a lot of a lot of ground because you think six thousand feet for a statute mile is a mile, so is a mile. So you think if I'm just turning from from heading north, turning to south casually, six thousand feet, I'm literally moving an entire mile in that direction when I turn around. It's so it's it, yeah, the the ranges are just massive. Yeah, um, when you're when you're doing stuff like that. That's a good point. I didn't think about that at all. But yeah, he's like obviously in Nevada or something. I forget Death Valley something, and uh, he would end up in like 
Minnesota. <laughs> be, oh, for sure. So I mean, he crossed, to, like, he crossed the United States, yeah, in like, in, I don't know, 20 minutes or something crazy. It would be yeah, so, so easy to just accidentally end up so far. Yeah, well, and like, that is that is a problem, like turning. You're like, I'm really high, I'm really fast, I can't turn aggressively. Well, this is going to be a big turn. So the uh, yeah. one thing that kind of I just thought about what you were talking uh, to is, hey, the the need or the the pressure or the effort that is put on the IP. So just like Julian talked to you before, hey, the, the data analytics, that it goes out it, or it watches the lines. It then identifies and scores these events. So now I'm going to say what I do to do the exact same thing. So what we have is we get back in the building, we hand off our tapes, we then get our lines queued up with no analytics on them. And then we go through, and if I'm if I'm on my game that day, in between fights, while we're climbing back up, if we're doing dogfighting or BFM, whatever you want to call it, uh, on our climb back up, while I'm keeping track of my wingman, I'm checking my gas, I'm making sure we're not flying out of the airspace, uh, I'll write down the time. Hey, that fight started at, you know, 8.23.15. And then I'll talk to my wingman a bit, little bit, and then we'll move on to the next fight. And we'll get an average of about six to ten fights, depending on what we're doing and all that kind of stuff. And then we'll come back. So if I'm lucky, I have the start times. If I'm not lucky, yeah. I don't. So then we just kind of like cruise forward and we're like, yeah, this looks about right. And then we just kind of have to find the start of each fight. So we don't even, our jet, nothing tells us when the fights start. Then once we find the uh, fight start, now what we will do is watch a complement of the HUD footage. So we record our, our, at least in the F-16, they record the HUD. So the heads up display. Uh, and then the left and right MFD, uh, which are the multifunction displays, which pretty much tell you, give you like a God's eye view of the world, gives you um, your radar. So it'll actually give you um, the threats or the other aircraft airborne, uh, depending on their range. Um, so that's kind of what you'll watch in the debrief. So you'll watch the God's eye view of the lines uh, and then you'll watch the tapes. And then we'll normally watch in about seven to 10 second chunks of the fight. So you think if a fight takes anywhere from 60 to 90 seconds, we will watch that in seven second chunks and then break down what went right and what went wrong. And normally a set takes about 25 to 30 minutes, depending on how well they did. 25 minutes for seven seconds, just to be clear. I have that. No, no, per set. So 30, so 60 to 90 seconds of a fight will take us 25 minutes to do with one fight. And Still, we'll get about I six mean, to 10 of those. Yeah. yeah. And so now we have six to 10 fights that are taking 30 minutes to debrief each set. And then at the end, we'll do trend analysis. So we'll say across all 10 of these, these fights, in six of those 10 fights, you had the same error. And then we'll turn around and then find, uh, as we go through, we'll kind of get what's called uh, like causal factors or a DFP, so a debrief focus point, and we'll say, hey, why, you know, why did you have this error? Was it an input? Was it an output? Or was it a decision error? So, hey, was it something you saw, your input, that made you make the error? You misperceived something. Or was it an output? You knew what you wanted to do, but your left hand and right hand just couldn't do it. You just yeah. couldn't, you know, make the stuff work uh, the way you wanted. Uh, or is it a decision error? So you saw the right thing. You just decided to do the wrong thing. And so that's how we break it down. And I think that's what the whole fighter pilot 
world, what it prepares you well for is uh, boiling down complex things into their most simple forms and then uh, and then also really trying to hammer home what the actual failure point was because a lot of times what we'll find is failure failure will happen but people don't always get back to the root cause so if there was a misunderstanding of the student before or in the brief on what was a what was supposed to be attempted right and then you go out and fly it and then they do the wrong thing every time right and you never ask them why did you do this? What were you attempting to do? What was your understanding of the procedure or the maneuver? You're going to misassess that they just don't know how to do the maneuver physically. Like they, their output is incorrect. They don't know left hand, right hand, how to do the maneuver versus they were misunderstanding the nature of the maneuver in its uh, in the beginning. And right. so that's where we have to be very deliberate in the words we use, in the way we communicate. Uh, one of my buddies, uh, it's it's such a it's so such a basic statement, but it means so much. Uh, he says words words mean things, and <laughs> obviously they mean things. But what he means by that is use the right words. Do not replace words with other words because they're close. Be yeah. very deliberate in your speaking, and I think that's. That's an important part of communicating effectively. Yeah, I mean, it, it speaks to like just how complex. It's almost like trying to turn people into machines. Like if you can't program people, so you try to get as close to objectivity as you possibly can. At least y'all are breaking it down by that. Like at least it's not, you know, hey, pretty good, not pretty. And sometimes we do see in like the training, pilot training, Literally, like, just, okay, you know, above average, average, below average. At least, you know, the, the deeper you can go, maybe the data you end up with is, is more useful. And this came up a lot at AFM's, the, the conference that I was at this week, um, where we were talking about, like, all right, all these different, so PTN or UPT, PTT, um, and all these other programs, and everybody has kind of their own... LMS, hopefully they have an LMS, hopefully they have a learning management system on base where they're keeping track of pilot performance. Maybe they have an LMS or not. All of those are under different contract. Like everything is in a silo for the most part. And so unfortunately, a lot of these scoring, not just the scores, obviously by IP are going to be different. Everybody sees different things and prioritizes different things. Um, But the scoring format, is different. And so then if you try to compile all of this data and say, let's analyze the trends over the last five years of all the fighter pilots across all airframes in the last you know five years or whatever, you're, you're ending up with like this weird hodgepodge mix of one through five, one, two, three, zero, and one, some objective data like coming off of our product or other products like ours where we're actually tracking uh, you know, like the, the that literal computer score of what they did. Um, so it's this weird kind of mix of data. And at first that really bugged me. Like day one, I was really kind of like frustrated about the, the you know, mix of different formats of data and how do you use all that um, if everybody's kind of scoring differently. But by day three, I kind of realized it, it's got to be somewhat in a silo. And maybe that's okay. You kind of build for what works for you. I was saying to Bear as I was leaving, like, 
it's almost maybe better, and maybe this is how it works in like the enterprise world as well. Let it kind of sit in a silo. Let these like innovation developments sit in a silo for a little while. And now we're back to subjectivity. Like how how long should they should we just dance with the one who brought us and then expose ourselves to the wider Magcom or whatever and see if there's a fit across does that make sense? Where there's like yeah. all these different little innovation initiatives and yes, there's a just a shitload of overlap. And that is frustrating at first. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe everybody's reinventing the wheel. But maybe the like minor differences expose themselves after X years of working on it or months of working on it. Well, yeah, and I think I think one of the things is one of my arguments why we need data analytics is that the nature of it is of IP scoring and the way we do grading is subjective. Because there's a lot of times, maybe maybe I was a Santa Claus or or you know that's what we refer to someone who just passes everyone like giving everybody presents. Right. Um, but maybe I was a Santa Claus, or maybe my my sticking points were just different than other people's sticking points. Based so on your experience, times. maybe from like exactly. your operations, maybe you were in a mission where landing was so unimportant, and so you just don't care. You know what what you really care about is like some BFM stuff, and so you're passing everyone on the stuff that wasn't ever important for your career. But who knows? You know that's just your career. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing. I mean, I would say the vast majority of fighter pilots in the combat air force are also are also referred to as the CAF. Uh, couldn't care less about landings. You know, you're going to go fight, you're going to come back and you're going to land. And then you go to the formal training course, which is literally where you teach them how to land and where they're the biggest liability at landing. Uh, and then you have to focus on landing. Um, but yeah, but that's, that's exactly it. So there are times where I'll give someone a two out of, you know, so the, the score is zero. If they can't do it one, they can do it, but they need help Two. They can do it on their own, but they're not very good at it. Three, uh, they're pretty good at it. And four, they're exceptional at it. So I may give someone a two and someone else would give someone a three. Now, does that make a big difference at the end of the day? Probably not because it's not like that's going to change the aircraft that kids go into. That's not going to change them as a pilot overall. Right. Uh, but what it's showing is there's subjectivity in the way we grade uh, the way the thing I got told when I went to IFF, so Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals. So when you graduate pilot training and you get a fighter slot, all that means is you now have been allowed the opportunity to go attempt to fly fighters. And IFF is where you take an aircraft from I fly an aircraft like any other aircraft. I take off, I cruise, I do approaches, and I land. I don't fight. I don't do anything like that. IFF is where you start fighting. And it's pretty fun. I had a great time. They say it's like a screening process, but I had a wonderful time. It it, it was it was just fighting in an F six or fighting in a T thirty eight. Yeah. What are you? So using? Uh, are they still? And I think they're they're like trying to wrap up the T thirty eight, or it's on its way out. Cool. So most people yeah, are in I mean, the T six. Checks in the mail. They T seven uh, is getting kicked down the road year after year. Yeah, but I mean the T seven. I think that was like a early teens like a 2013 2015 now it's a 2028 or something yeah yeah the 38 is going to have to hang on or we're not going to have an afterburner trainer uh in the air force but i mean i assume they're just going to keep keep moving the 38 um but yeah so so you you fly the 38 and you do all that and and uh it was 
I, I, I had a good time there, uh, but I'm struggling to recall what I was... Uh, uh, we're talking about school. subjectivity uh, in... Oh, yeah. In, yeah. So uh, the first meeting, I sit down and, you know, they're like, hey, welcome to IFF. Um, you know, the expectations are high. The grading scale is zero, one, two, three, or four. So the grading scale doesn't change across your training. Uh, and the guy says, zero means you can't do it. One means you can do it, but barely. Two uh, means you're roughly proficient. Three you means you're as good as me. And four means you're better than me. So don't expect to get more than a two. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, and I heard that and I was like, that's awesome. Like, I just yeah. loved it because it was a challenge. It was like, all right, well, I'm going to try to be better than you. Yeah, you know? totally. but, the, uh, but that's where you can run into those guys where he could see a person be in accordance with the CTS, the course training standards. A person could have earned a three or maybe even a four. But that guy, you got a two. Doesn't yeah. matter because you're not as good as me. Uh, so that's where, and again, that was more of a joke than anything. Um, and this was a long time. But it's ago, true, so it's right? Proud. I mean, to some degree, yeah. like if you've been doing it for a long time, you're like, no, this kid doesn't know what he's, maybe they got lucky, you know? Yeah. And, and a lot of it is that. Like I remember I would have a flight in training where I just nail it. I would just do it so well. And the IP's like, wow, you really get this. And I'm looking at him like, I don't know what happened. I blacked out. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just, it just, I just took off and landed and all of a sudden I did a good job. So yeah, yeah. I, I used to, when I first got back to the FTU or the B course for the F-16 as an instructor, uh, I used to think, Hey, these kids, you know, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, they make a mistake. It's probably just, you know, a, a air that can, that's not a common, a trend. Yeah. And then I realized, like, I can't give them that benefit of the doubt. Not because they're not good people or they don't deserve it. It's because they have not demonstrated that they can do the thing yet. So if they, if you've demonstrated it and you are proficient and then you have a bad day, that's one thing. But if it's your first day and you don't demonstrate proficiency, it's not a bad day. It's just you you can't do the thing yet. Uh, and that's what we have to be sure we do is you're not their friend for passing them. You know, you're not their friend for giving them a passing grade when they may not deserve it. Stakes are too high. The stakes are too damn high. Yeah. Yeah. So you, they have to earn it. Uh, and I think that's the only way we can keep a safe fighting force, but also a proficient fighting force is making everybody earn it. And every day, every day I flew, I had to earn it. Uh, because if, if I didn't, I was going to be dangerous either uh, for myself or even worse, somebody else. Because that's really, at the end of the day, the worst thing you could do in a single-seat fighter is get someone else hurt uh, or yeah. killed. Because, you know, if you if you get hurt or killed because of your shortcomings or your failures, I mean, sadly, that's on you. But if yeah. you hurt someone else because of your shortcomings or failures, you know, it's hard to come back from that. It'd be hard to come back from that. I want to go back to... Um just kind of talking about the innovation and silo thing and the subjectivity stuff is, is like training I think is a terrifying concept because there are all these different kind of thoughts and you know, it, it needs to be said and obviously you never want to stop accelerating or stop improving, but it, it does need to be said that what, what happens now effectively does work. Like you got here through the current training kind of standards and stuff like it, it does enough like it does work you do end up getting somehow over the amount of time and I guess the big question is how do you cut down on that time or how do you get it a little bit more uh, 
predictable and repeatable. Um, but yeah, I, I almost want to stay away from training because it's so terrifying to me and there's so many opinions. Um, just like the just backing all the way up to just innovation within the DOD and what the hell is the problem? Like, why is it so far behind? Thinking about stuff that we don't do that I'm really like kind of noob on VR simulation, stuff like that. You look at what they've got at Seymour in their VR lab, or you look at these like pretty sweet clamshell simulators, and um, some of the stuff that you see at like ITSEC or these conferences where big, big dollar primes are rolling out like the latest and greatest is badass. Most of the time that's not adopted yet. That's like a very, very, like 10 years ahead of the curve uh, preview of what's to come. Why is the DOD, like, wh- why does it take so long then for the DOD? You look at other industries where, because I used to think it was like, well, they're experts at combat or they're experts at flying a jet. They're not experts at business adoption or they're not experts at like VR or this other industry. But then you look at stuff like medicine and you're like, well, these guys are experts at surgery. They're not experts at business adoption either. And yet they somehow move faster. They adopt cutting edge technology, you know, some of the time Not you know, obviously not every hospital ever, but like a lot of the time these, these, you know, finance groups and stuff will adopt stuff faster why is the DOD, and obviously there's not a silver bullet, but what, let, let's dig in on why the DOD like, just cannot yeah. get out of its own way and keep up with the private sector. So I think there's, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, the reality is the DOD's funding is controlled by having a budget, like actually passing a budget, not a, the continuing resolution. Yeah. Uh, on top of that, their funding is not controlled by anyone inside the, the DOD. You know, it's congressionally allocated. Um, so those are two big problems because you think, so the Air Force runs on fiscal years uh, starting October 1. But if- I knew the budget, problem was the voter. I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, and, honestly and, the emotions of the voter. Yeah, and sadly, it's, it's one of those things where even if the chief of staff of the Air Force wanted to do it, it's kind of beyond his ability to control some of these things. Um, yeah. And so what ends up happening is a budget isn't, if a budget isn't passed in for our, the next fiscal year and the funding doesn't show up. So the average year where we don't have a budget, most funding for the year to the basis does not arrive until about March. So we're almost halfway, roughly halfway through the fiscal year when the, the dollars for the year actually arrive. Why so is making, that? That seems like a solvable problem. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, that's... But I think the, the problem is it's like layers and layers of bureaucracy because what yeah. we end up having is there's... Sadly, I would complain about a lot of things while I was on active duty and I would complain to people who would, who would try to tell me, you know, hey, this is, this is great and this is going to be good for the Air Force and or this and that, or this is why you need to do this for the Air Force. And then I would say, like, why is it so cumbersome? Why are we so inefficient? Why do we seem to waste money in areas uh, or put good money after bad? And then the saddest response would be, well, that's just the the way the Air Force works. It's like, no, it doesn't have to. Like, there are a lot of other companies that don't do that. And if it's because they don't control their budget, they don't control when they get their dollars, they don't control how they can allocate their dollars, then maybe that is how the Air Force works and that needs to change. Uh, I think the problem is 
we have a lot of cool things like the AFWorks organization and we have the, a way to kind of get around some of the bureaucracy because they realized a few years back that, hey, our acquisitions and contracting process is very labor intensive and very, uh, it takes a long time. And what that ends up doing is making it difficult for companies to work with them because if you know, you get contracted and it takes months to get paid. And then by the time the contract's done and you say, hey, okay, let's move forward. The Air Force says, oh, maybe in, in two years we'll move forward. Well, that company yeah. is not going to sit around for two years. Uh, and not the Air Force doesn't. Small. Yeah. And, they, the, and, yeah. and that's, the entire, that's the whole business model of a SIBR. It says you have to be small. You can't be a prime. You can't be a big company. Uh, so really all they're, they're setting these companies up for is, hey, build a team, build a program, build something we want, and then either get gobbled up by a prime or like maybe get lucky or just fade away, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate because the Air Force, the vast majority of people in the Air Force don't see life the same way as people in the private sector companies where, hey, you know, next year we don't know what our funding is going to be, but there is going to be funding is the Air Force life. We don't yeah. know, but it will happen. Where for you, uh, in like a, just a general company, the funding isn't guaranteed next year. So if the Air Force doesn't make a decision, then that company can't just sit, sit around waiting for the Air Force to do something. Right. So I think that's that's something that has to be solved. But I mean, we see it across the board. I mean, we see it with the F-22 the F-35, and apparently the thing that's on the way next, they, they all were very, you know, I think they were, they're over budget, they're behind timeline. And it makes sense. You're building a wildly complex thing and it's very difficult to do. Uh, but turns out like Lockheed and, you know, Boeing and these companies, they can, they can hang on for a little while where oh, yeah. uh, a, a company that's via or eligible for a SIBR they're not going to just go an entire year with zero, you know, additional funds and and be there when the Air Force finally gets back around to them. And I think so, that's what needs to be fixed because I think the AFWorks program is awesome and the SIBR opportunities are there. I think there has to be something, a stopgap or some sort of continuity between a SIBR 2 and a SIBR 3 and I think that's what Stratfies and TACFIs are supposed to do, which I don't know what those acronyms are, Julian, if you, if you do. Feel free to speak <laughs> I know Stratfi is strategic financing, which is hilarious that that's what it's called. Oh, okay. And I think yeah, TACFI is probably tactical finance. I don't finance know. It. Look at that. I like it. Well, there's a <laughs> strategic SAMs and uh, tactical SAMs. So maybe they came from uh, their, there. You go. Uh, SAMs surface air missiles. I did. Uh, hilarious to, uh, sorry to interrupt, but hilarious oh, yeah. to just. Like, uh, instead of adjusting the SIBR program, just come up with another program as like a Band-Aid. Yeah. At just, some point, well, you are I, mostly Band-Aids in the DOT. <laughs> I think that's a lot of what the what the Air Force is doing now is like, hey, we're, I mean, with manpower, we have just ungodly Excel programs that it's like, okay, just nobody mess with it because it works. And the one person who knows how to fix it, hopefully they never leave or the whole yeah. process is broken. Um, but that's really what we experience is we have, again, these, these major companies like a PEX or a GTIMS uh, that probably 
I mean, I know they didn't intentionally build a program that we wouldn't be able to use well. I think what happened is the acquisitions process asked for the moon and they said, okay, we'll give it to you. But what ends up happening is it makes a very cumbersome program that's complex that no one is going to be an expert on. So then we can't even use the qualities that it does have. And then we say, oh, this program's not good. And it's not that the program's not good. We probably just asked for too much. Like we yeah. just need a, a lean bare bones program to solve the problem that we have. Uh, and that's what people are doing in the AppWork space. And I think that's why for now, some band-aids will be good. Some band-aids will alleviate some of the real time pressure. And then hopefully some of those become a more applicable, more accurate solution for the bigger problem than just a, you know, a very finite data analytics or automated scheduler. I mean, the fact that I think I saw a, a, a white paper, like just a paper that someone wrote a long time ago, unclassified, I think it was in the 80s, it was like 86, that someone wrote automated automating scheduling. Yeah. And we are still trying to figure out the automated scheduling process. And it just happens like every decade or two, we just have somebody who says like, we have to figure this out. Yeah. And now, you know, maybe we got a, a good shot at it, but it's, it's definitely been a, a difficult target. It's so funny you bring that up because uh, I was just about to say like, as angry, like we are suffering, my company is like suffering through the civil process and like things, you know, falling apart. There's just this giant disconnect between the warfighter and the people who actually make the decisions and the money and even when it's a good idea. And I, for all the complaining I could do about kind of being on the short end of the stick on that process, I also, it's bittersweet because I also see from like a giant, you know, top down perspective, 50,000 feet up perspective it does sort of work somehow. Like if you have all these, and maybe the cyber program is just a very clever lie to get all these companies to build, instead of just submitting white papers or submitting, you know, their R and D scope of work. Like here's what we would build if awarded a contract. They give, they, they make us build an actual proof of concept and then they get to judge it. And I think that might be clever. There was a guy at Athens, I don't want to name names, but there was a guy at the conference who rolled out, he's basically in my shoes, except that instead of uh, objective, you know, a debrief tool that provides like objective data on what happened in the training sortie, it provides, it's a scheduler. It's an automated, he built like an automated scheduler under a Cibber phase two in collaboration with a base, just like us, Different product, but like same kind of stance. He immediately got $600,000 from the Magicom as like sustainability funds. Multiple people grabbed the mic during the Q&A and they're like, we'll find you some money. <laughs> it's like exactly what I've been hoping would happen for us. Um, just immediately happened for him. And so, you know, there is like a shiny, obviously we don't benefit this time, but there is a glimmer of hope there that if you plant all these seeds, you let them kind of, yeah, there's a ton of overlap and ah shit, sometimes they're reinventing the wheel and they're building in a silo and these guys don't know about this product over here at this other side of the country. Uh, if they do hang on, they do make a big enough splash, eventually seven out of 10 of them will get notoriety and will get noticed and will get a little bit of money. The thing there, the problem there that I don't think anyone's solving yet is that requires some sort of like business acumen. 
and that sucks. You do want, like, especially when you're talking about, like, software or real deep tech, uh, hardware or software, regardless, you're talking about people who don't have time to go do marketing or find the right person to, you know, move it up the chain or whatever. You, you want this person heads down. Like, I want my team heads down solving data analytics problems, finding G in the data, not, you know, out there helping me pitch to ACC or AETC or whomever. Um, and that, that's kind of a tough spot. Well, I think the Air Force, you know, the DOD is, is difficult to work with in a, again, I'm assuming here, I've never been in the private sector or anything, is difficult to work with because I would assume a lot of companies, you can just kind of contact them. You can go to their website and you can say, hey, support, I want to do this. But you can't do that for the Air Force. And, you know, it's not like you can just go Google Seymour Johnson spark cell lead and yeah. it's going to show up. You know, you have to, you kind of have to know who to talk to just to get in the door where at other companies, they, they do a better job of marketing and getting their information out there. Uh, and I think that's one of the the problems and I get it. I mean, the DOD is, is new in the space, so they're not really good at marketing themselves or getting the word out. But I mean, as a military member on a base and I want to call, I don't know, logistics readiness group or L or logistics logistics readiness squadron LRS. I don't know if that's the acronym. Uh, I don't know how to call them. Like, I don't yeah. know what their phone number is and I'm in the military on the base. <laughs> and, uh, and so I can only imagine what it's like being just a company who it's like, Hey, we're going to work with the DOD. Okay. How do we do that? You know, and, and how do we contact bases and how do we get the word out? that we are already working with the base and how, you know, and it's literally, Hey, I know a guy who knows a guy, or, I mean, the way we got put in contact was we both knew the same person and he yeah. said, Hey, you should talk to this guy. And that's how it worked out. And it was just because I sat in a meeting with him and he and I chat and he's, he's a good dude. And he said, Oh, Vader, Vader will be a guy you want to talk to at Holloman. And turns out it worked out. Uh, and I think that's, that's what we have to get away from. And I think, Again, AFWorks is probably slammed with all the stuff they're working on, with all the sibbers they're putting out and all the work they're doing. So I get it that they, they can't also be a massive PR firm because that's that's yeah. not what they're commissioned to do. Uh, but hopefully the Kodiak Shack podcast can kind of help with that, kind of get people, just connect people and kind of bring people together and kind of make a little more noise for the space because I think you know, collider events, which I've never even been to a collider event. Uh, but I think it sounds cool. It sounds like, uh, like a, uh, it's sick or something like that, but just for AFWorks, um, run. And I think that's good because that's, that's what people need to do. But I didn't even know they existed until I visited AFWorks and they told me like, Oh, you should have been here last week. We had an AFWorks event. Yeah. Well, that, that's great to know. That's another so. thing. There's so many damn events. In the private sector, <laughs> you wouldn't get... And I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's so... It is easy to... One, one giant distinction I would want to make for like the listener and anybody who's even like thinking about dipping a toe into the space if you are private sector, uh, it, it, it's, it's so unfair to be... And I don't want to let the DOD off easy on this one because there are improvements they should make, but it's so unfair to compare the DOD to like 99% of private sector companies. If you're small, 
you just end up accidentally falling into luck. If you're IBM, if you're 350,000 employees or whatever, uh, and IBM is a bad example because they just are sort of like a conglomerate of a ton of companies that, you know, there are, in fact, that, that might be like the DOD. There's a lot of overlap. Um, a giant, giant organization is what we're talking about. It is like the enterprise sales of enterprise sales. It's not, you know, 1999 Salesforce or something. It's not like a small to medium-sized startup company. The DOD is hundreds of thousands. I mean, it's insanely big. And so um, you are going to run into just some problems there alone. But while we're taking shots, um, I will say, <laughs> like, AFWORK specifically, one one problem that I do have there, I, I agree they're pretty slammed. I think that they are, like, doing what they're trying to do very well. Um, you would never see in the private sector someone with the money investing in an MVP, even at this dollar amount, even though it's like in the million dollar range for a phase two, you would never see somebody cough up a million dollars and then not follow up and try to get that out there, try to get that to the next phase, do what they can to at least make introductions. I mean, this is like half of the bargain with raising VC money in the private sector is you pick the, if you have a truly good idea and a good product, then you don't have to beg. Like VCs come to you, they're they're begging. They're like trying to get in on the round. Sometimes you have to kick them off to the next round. And as a founder, what you do is you you pick the VCs who have something to offer. It's either expertise in the space. They can literally like help you build a better product or prioritize what features to roll out uh, with each release version, or they know the right people in the space. They can introduce. They can facilitate something to help your business grow, to help your product grow. And AppWorks really drops the ball, in my opinion, on that side. They do give you the money. They do, you know, set you up with, yeah, just the money. Actually, that's all they do. They just give you the money. <laughs> and that is, that is, I think, where they really need to, if I could, like, prioritize the, the next kind of things that AppWorks needs to grow on, they need to make a little bit more of an effort to introduce you to the right people um, to, to actually get the money uh, to, the, you know, to, to, to get the continuation, to keep building past the, the MVP. Our product right now is only for the F-15 because that was our collaborator base. So there right there is like a huge problem. Why were we not you know, told day one, hey, this needs to be fighter-wide or why was nobody you know, kind of there saying, hey, you really need to haul ass and talk to other airframes? Well, and that's, that's one of the things again, to keep plugging my show on my show. But the uh, the goal of this is before the Sibbers happen, before, you know, when have Bear from Seymour Johnson come out here and he says, hey, these are the things we're working on. And then the new Sparksell lead at Holloman or Stinger over at Luke says, I want part of that. Because that's, that's exactly what happened with Holloman, Luke, DM, and Tucson. We all said, we want this program and we signed a joint Sibber. And so now the contract is, hey, provide them all this product. Uh, and then we all have our, our slight modifications to it. But overall, it's a product for multiple bases. Where right now, yeah, it's Seymour Johnson. And you're, by nature of our information, even the unclass information being controlled, we can't give you that because we're not under contract. If we were on your server yeah. as well, We'd be able to give you our data and you'd be able to analyze it and you'd say we have Strike Eagle and F-15 or F-16 
data analytics. Uh, and that's, that's one of the unfortunate things and why we need to kind of spread the word a little bit more. And like you said, I think it's a incentive problem. So it's, uh, what is that old saying? Humanity is like a old man planting a tree for the shade he will not sit in. Uh, it, that's yeah. like, the, that's the innovation space. It's, hey, the, all of the work I did, 100% of the work I did in innovation at Holloman, I saw none of it. I yeah. didn't get to see anything. Like literally, I was out processing the base and the VR headset showed up two days before I drove out of town. Oh my God. But it's, but it's <laughs> for everyone else. It's for the next generation. It's why our human performance uh, fitness stuff is so important to me because I know having neck and back and shoulder issues as a washed up fighter pilot, I don't want the next generation to have it. And if it means they have a soft tissue and a physical therapist and a strength coach and a dietitian to live a better existence and a fighter pilot career than I did, that's a win. Like that's a total win for all of us, not just the people who get that experience. And that's why I think in programs, so I was the first class in 2012 to go through the abbreviated, abbreviated F-16 syllabus. So the people who went through before got more F-16 training before they left their training base. Oh, damn. They, and then, down, they cut sorties. Yeah, and, and they've, yeah. they cut it since multiple times. Oh so in God. 2012, they cut the syllabus. And then since then, they've cut it at least twice, I think. Pilot training has done the same. So every single pilot, so a pilot who went through pilot training, who went through IFF and the B course and got to the combat air force in 2010 is different from a pilot who went through in 2012 and who went through in 2017 and 20 and 22. Uh, so we're all getting less flying experience, but we need to make just the same amount of product. We have to be, the product has to have the same capability and safety and quality uh, and leveraging innovation to do that is going to be the game changer. It's the only way we're going to be, be able to do it. Like, Hey, do more with less is a common joke that we say in the military, but that's, that's what you do. You have to synergize. You have to make, take that extra time or that make your time that you are going to allocate more efficient and more effective to make that product. Cause if you're not, it's never going to work out. Uh, so that's why, getting the word out, getting more people involved in Sibbers at the beginning to make better products initially is only going to make for better adoption because the thing that I find so surprising and having never been a commander and having never done any sort of the finance side of the house is how little ability people have to allocate funds. And so AFWorks, you know, has billions of dollars to just throw around and say, yep, you get a, you know, you get a million, you get a million, you get a million. And then you go to a wing commander and you say, Hey, can we get a million? And they're like, Ooh, no, I can't help you there. And you're like, that <laughs> just throws it around. And so that's the tough thing, which I get wing commanders have a lot of people to look after and a lot of programs and they have to pick and choose where they're going to spend their dollars. But if we, if we can't get a sip or two, get an MVP, get a product that is very useful to the end user and then fund it, we're never going to make any progress. We're going to attempt a lot of times and we're going to spend a lot of money attempting and we're not going to get anything across the finish line because the reality is if 
if the moment we ask for real funds for a Cyber 3 or effective, effectively commercial use and full uh, rollout and development of the program, the moment we, we keep hitting roadblocks and we can never get a program of record and have somebody own it and have money, money at least for a couple of years, we're, we're not going to make any, any sort of progress in our, in our attempts. Yeah, and you really, it, I think you nailed it. it. It's difficult to pick the winners, and I think it's difficult to then, like, how do you pick the winner if you don't have lunch with 25 of the end users? If you can't go and talk to a bunch of the people who are actually going to end up using the proof of concept and say, like, hey, what do you think? How is that wing commander equipped unless they remember and they've got a really solid perspective um, you, you know, we kind of go back to the original part of the conversation around the, the DOD at large seems to rely on and take for granted, call it patriotism, you ordering stuff for the next generation of fighters selflessly, even though it's not going to affect you because you don't want them to sit around with back and neck pain for the rest of their lives like you will. Um, they, they, they bank on that. The DOD sort of banks on this just, all right. I'll get. I'll stay up late and get the job done because I want this student pilot to understand how, you know, a brake turn works or whatever. That kind of you know above and beyond. You don't want to bank on. You don't want to have to rely on that. It's not repeatable. It's not realistic that every you know member of the DoD in a leadership position is going to go out of their way to help anybody but themselves. Um, as much as they bank on that they sort of put guys like us in a position to have to do really, really difficult enterprise sales to get noticed. And that sucks. Like if you don't expose it in the right way, if you don't get your product out into the, the hands of the right people, uh, and who's to say, why is that the skill that you're trying? You're not trying to reward that skill. No one can, that's not important. The important thing is like, does this automated scheduler work? Not is the CEO you know, good at marketing and, and good at getting, you know, floating it to the right people. Yeah. And I think that's the, uh, it's funny that, you know, why you were saying that is I don't know if we're going to be able to assume that the next generations of pilots are going to do the same thing. Because what I've noticed is for, for better or for worse, there were things that I understood going through pilot training that, were kind of the, they were unspoken. And, and again, maybe I shouldn't have done this, but there are multiple times where they're like, hey, like if you don't feel like you got enough rest or whatever, like don't fly that day. And I was like, wink, copy all. Like I'm going to fly <laughs> yeah. because one, it's awesome. And two, I, I want to wage war. Like yeah. I don't get to choose what day I go to war. Yeah. I'm going to go to war if I am alive and my sinuses are clear enough that I will not blow out a near drum on climb or descent. Yeah. And now like, again, like they, the IPs at the time, they said the right thing. They were like, Hey, if you don't feel up for it, you know, fall out of a sortie. Like don't fly that day. And I was like, understood. And then I never fell out of a sortie because I knew <laughs> that I had to do my job. My job yeah. was flying that jet and I will do it. Granted, you know, if I like couldn't clear my ears, if I was, if I was going to be unsafe, I wouldn't do it. 
but that was a very, very, very low probability. And nowadays, the students are like, oh man, yeah, my neighbor was like mowing the lawn early this morning, so I just, you know. Really? Is that serious? They're bailing out of somebody's all the time? And I was like, hmm. And I remember remember some people doing that, uh, mainly in pilot training, not really in the B course. Um, But they... But now, and, and again, I'm never going to tell somebody to get into a jet if they don't feel they should get into a jet because that's, that totally. is also, yeah, like you don't, if you don't feel up for it, don't do it. But there's, there's like a, there's, I don't know, a gumption. There is, there is something like a, a burning desire to do that job. And there's this really cool video. Uh, it's a video of like an A model F-16 with Robin Olds. You know who Robin Olds is? No. Who's Robin Olds? So Robin Olds, oh man, he was like the fighter pilot's fighter pilot. He was like a linebacker at the academy. He's a big dude. He would like, he was an 06, so like a colonel. And he like fought lieutenants in the O club bar. And and, uh, <laughs> and you're just like, just wild stuff. And uh, he like married a movie star, you know, like the quintessential, like, dang, yeah, that guy Maverick. gets it. Uh, I mean, yeah, exactly. So he, but he, there's this, there's this, uh, audio of him talking about being a fighter pilot and it says and i'm not going to quote the whole thing and because i'm going to butcher it but it's effectively like hey you know you want to being a fighter pilot is you want to do well you know in your eyes and the eyes of your peers you want to achieve you want to be successful uh and it's a great clip like you can just look up robin old's you know fighter pilot and uh there there's a book about his life it's a very good book um but yeah, it's it, it's cool to listen to, and every time I listen to it, like it just reinvigorates that desire to go fly fighters and do the job. Um, but yeah, I I, I question it. Uh, you know, there's this joke, and it's been around for a long time. You know, I at one point was referred to as what's called a snap, a sensitive new age pilot. Uh, so back in <laughs> 2012, I was a snap, and then now I'm the old guy. In 2022, I'm like, oh, these snaps. But these I would never say that about kids, it. <laughs> But one of the B courses told me like, hey, I am not provided an opportunity to go get lunch. And I was I was flabbergasted. Like I, in a decade of flying jets, I never once thought it was my, my, my organization's job to provide me lunch or even provide me a time to get lunch. Yeah. If I don't have a chance to get lunch, I don't get lunch. I eat popcorn yeah. in the bar. And then I go debrief. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you, but the fact that they had that entitled sense to say like, hey, you need to schedule me time to work out. You need to schedule me time to go grab lunch. Like, negative. You yeah. are a fighter pilot. You plan. You food prep on Sunday. You go pick up lunch at 10 o'clock because you know you're going to be busy from 11 to 6 p.m. Like, I don't know what to tell you, but expecting the organization to do that for you as what I would expect is a organized and professional fighter pilot unset. And it, it, it was, that's when I kind of realized like, oh man, I think, I think we have a different generation going through, which I'm not saying it's bad. It's just different. So when we have the, Hey, we, I, I'm not going to tell you to stay till 6 PM until the job's done, but you're probably going to stay until 6 PM because the job's not done until 6 PM. So that's one of the things that I that I think has been intrinsic and may not be in the next the future, which I, I don't wish that upon them. I want them to have a more normal life. 
Like if you were to ask my wife, she'd say like, no, I don't have a normal life. I've, I, she hasn't had a normal life since she married me and traveled around the world and had me out of a three-year assignment. I was gone 19 months. Oh like that's gosh. a problem. Yeah. And so you you think like, oh, I, I, I want for this next generation to have a better organization to work for due to the innovation that they've made, due to the hard work of the people before them so they can be the fighter pilots they need to be when it's time to wage war. Because, I mean, hopefully it doesn't happen. But if that war happens, like people have to be proficient. People yeah. have to be capable because it is no joke. And you, you look at these, these people who, you know, fought in World War II and Korea and Vietnam, like they did serious things, things that, you know, would, or, I mean, even having done all the stuff I have, which is not exceptional in any way, having done the stuff I have, it is, it is eye watering to think about the stuff they did because they had to. And it's still so, so dependent on the human. It's crazy, like all the innovation, all the tech, all the like new age jet, vector thrusting, everything, like everything that's so cool coming out now. It's, I mean, the same stuff we were saying a minute ago. It's so dependent still on the human. And if the motivation isn't there, if you're not willing to sacrifice, if you're not willing to go the extra mile or whatever, the job's not going to get done. And that is, that, that seemingly doesn't change within the DOD. You do still have a lot of like, people willing to kind of go the extra mile. But it's interesting to hear that, yeah, you feel like there's a, a, a cultural shift. I think so. And I think, uh, I, you know, I, it's just, it's a different world. It's, you know, the world of social media and it's a world of, which I, it's not like I think all these, these new fighter pilots or TikTokers or anything like that, but they, <laughs> they're just, they've been exposed to a different life that I didn't grow up in. And I don't, I don't, throw stones. I don't, you know, think they're worse for it. I think they're awesome fighter pilots and I enjoy working with them and teaching them and learning from them just like they learn from me. Uh, I think, I think we just have to understand that we're in a different time. And that means I always gauge a, an instructor or a teacher on their ability not to teach their way of teaching, but mm, to learn their students way of learning and teach that way. Because that, that's what makes you a good teacher or instructor is you understand your student well enough to teach them the way they learn uh, versus you will conform to my way of teaching uh, because you're not a good instructor that way. You're just repeating the information you know uh, instead of providing people information in the way they can understand it. Yeah. That's one of the things that came up in a private conversation I had at the, the conference this week is like, how are you readying, like what's the difference between a kick-ass pilot and an IP? How are you readying a pilot for instruction? And they were saying, not that, it, it's mostly just are you a kick-ass pilot? Are you enough of a kick-ass pilot to really be a good example? At the If there's time at the end, there's a little bit of, okay, and here's how to be an instructor. And in fact, even within that kind of third chunk of, okay, here's what it's like to be an instructor on top of being good enough, um, it's, it's mostly a focus on, I forget the term that was used, but it's mostly a focus on kind of how to just get through the day, how to, how to like get it all done, not how to actually effectively teach. It's not like a, a the, the, the focus isn't on actually learning 
it's on kind of just getting the job done or getting through, you know, checking all the boxes versus are we really conveying? Are we really teaching? So, yeah. And I think I was actually lucky enough. So I, I took a couple years getting through college, six and a half technically. Nice. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people go to college for seven years. But uh, <laughs> the... the uh, the thing that I was able to do is I actually worked in after school programs. So they actually explained um, learning, like how people learn. Like yeah. some people are visual learners. Some people, you know, need to move around. Some people need to read it, you know, all those different types of learning. So I kind of understood a little bit of learning to teach uh, before I got into the Air Force. So when I showed up, I, I understood a little bit. Obviously, I didn't understand any of the flying or any of the fighter pilot-ness. But once I learned that, then the lear- the stuff I learned prior, I understood how to be an instructor. And you're, you're exactly right. Like, cause this is being an instructor pilot is a, is a very difficult thing. And it's a very, it, you have to have balance uh, to it because there's an amount of talking that is beneficial. And then you cross this threshold and then that talking is, uh, is not beneficial anymore. It, it it starts reducing the student's ability to learn because you're just incessantly talking. So think about trying to do something and someone is just chattering in your ear. But if you don't say anything, the student is just going to be like, oh man, I'm nailing it. I'm just going to keep living my life. Uh, so in addition to be able to communicate effectively because words mean things, you have to be flying your own plane. So the F-16, most single seat fighters, you're in your plane, the students in there for the va- there's for the vast majority of uh, sorties, and you have to fly your plane, manage a sortie, keep track of gas, keep track of time because you're running airspace time. You execute your tactic because you are doing your job as well, in addition to monitoring your wingman and then gleaning how well they are understanding the tactic and executing the tactic by the words they're saying, by the way they're flying their jet and then communicating to them in the fewest words possible that still makes sense, a correction. Yeah. And then you see. And then you go back, and then this is what happens airborne. So I'm flying around. I'm like, all right, I'm 350 knots. I'm at 25,000 feet. We're pointing the correct direction. Hey, we're going to do this fight. And then how's my student doing? Is my student missing radio calls? Is my student in formation? Does my student sound like they don't know what's going on? I need to take a minute. I need to provide them feedback. And then sometimes it's, I need to slow down or I need to speed up and actually create more situations for my student to kind of push through if they are doing well and, and kind of challenging them. Uh, so that's a lot of what, what it does. It's not just learning how to teach. It's I have to be like in an instructor pilot upgrade. I have to be proficient. I have to be able to do my job adequately and then also monitor my wingman. And I was lucky enough to do my first instructor pilot upgrade at uh, McIntyre, which is an Air National Guard base in South Carolina, with a ton of extremely experienced guys. And what it was, it was more, uh, at least initially, it was more role-playing between. So what you would do is you would go fly BFM and demonstrate, I am capable of executing dogfighting as an offensive guy. And then I would turn around and then I would brief you offensive and I would fly defensive. And then I would watch you demonstrate your ability to fly offensive. 
while providing you site pictures, while demonstrating. So that was an instructor pilot upgrade that actually taught you how to teach and taught you how to monitor your wingman and taught you how to pay attention to them. Where most of the time we don't do that in instructor pilot upgrades and a lot of it's, okay, you're proficient enough to do the job, now get on the job training on how to teach. And it's like, well, that's tough. That's a difficult, difficult problem. Um, because again, you're, there's going to be a learning curve. You're just going to be a bad instructor for a little while if you haven't got that exposure before. So, sorry, that was a... No, that, that was so... I think that's extremely eye-opening. And I think, if anything, it just sort of hits the, like, just the final nail on how much we're leaning on people. We're, we're leaning yeah. on people so much. This exact thing I said at the beginning of the call. When I came out of this conference, I was just more sure that almost everything banks on the IP. The IP's time... I mean, the fact that you're talking about, so you're flying a jet, you're flying in formation. You're, now, granted, you've been doing it for 10 years, but you've been up there for the same amount of time as a student pilot handling all the same stuff that they're doing, and then you're supposed to read their mental state, and you're supposed to check in on them almost effectively flying their jet by proxy and thinking about how much they're growing as a pilot uh, while you're doing everything you're also doing in, in one of these engagements. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. You're also not getting sleep. You're also trying to, you know, stay up late and you've got to handle what 90 students in a squadron every couple of, it's insane. I mean, it's just so much. And so I really do think if you're going to hit the gas on programs like AFWorks, programs like Cibber, try to prioritize reducing the amount of dependence on patriotism or like the above and beyond attitude like if you possibly can i think of myself as an honorary i'm like a perfect millennial but i'm like an honorary gen z because yeah i've got so much laziness we're not gonna make it we're not gonna win if we can't and i I don't want to be shitty about gen z or whatever that's fine but like if if we're if we're holding out hope that we've got you know i forgot the guy's name but a bunch of rob rod whatever that oh, super robin olds yeah if we've got a bunch of, if we're banking on a ton of yeah broom hand, uh broomstick push broom mustache guys coming through yeah. and just handling shit we're gonna lose because you can't you just can't bank on that you cannot bank that everybody's gonna be you know a 80 hour plus week live breathe eat this stuff you don't get paid enough i mean that we can do a whole nother podcast on why that's a big sacrifice but like you just can't bank on that. You've got to build the tools, use the tools that are out there. But it, it, I understand the, you know, with all the trillions of dollars, the DOD is still limited in what they can spend money on. Prioritize the shit that is going to reduce the dependency on humans going above and beyond. Yeah. Well, and that's the, that's the thing. I mean, Robin Olds, like he was leading into combat as an 06. Like he was, he was doing the job. <laughs> Because he was like, hey, I'm going to send you to war. I'm going to go with you. And you're like, this dude's awesome. Uh, He, I mean, he was, he was almost like a maverick type guy. They need to put him in the movie. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, he, uh, he got like busted down rank because he wasn't like being a general, right? So he, he then, you know, got, became an 06 again. And I mean, just, just awesome stuff. Uh, But I think that's. That that's the hope. Hopefully, we we do the right thing, and we we create the innovation. And the great thing is that's that's what I found was awesome 
We have a lot of amazing people working on some amazing programs that are going to, that can do great things for the Air Force and the DOD at large if they just make it work, if they find a way to get funding and keep these things going. Um, because there was a period of time where we had a massive technological gap between us and our adversaries. And that time is coming to an end. Yeah. And so if we're going to sit there and say like, oh, we're going we're gonna to beat them by our advanced aircraft and technology. I, I mean, some of our aircraft are wildly advanced. The F-16 is not. So the only way that your fighter pilots are going to go and come back and win is if they are just inherently better. Yeah. And that, that's what we have to innovate our way out of it. We're not just going to snap our fingers and have aircraft that are hundreds of millions of dollars and we're going to have enough for all of us and we're all going to be super safe and not going to be threatened by the enemy. Yeah, I'd love that, but we're not going to have that. So we have to have the guy or a girl in the cockpit that is very, very capable, more capable than the enemy, because if yes. we don't, it's not going to end well for them. Well, all right. Well, we have uh, coming up on an hour and a half, so uh, this has been great. Uh, Julian, so any any parting uh, shots? Any uh, how, how can people contact you if they, if they want to reach out after hearing about, uh, your program and company? Yeah. So first of all, thanks. Um, I do need to plug our product. It is, uh, it's called the data driven readiness application, basically just taking the fighter jet data and trying to help the IP manage it better. It gives them objective scoring around what's going on using those objective scores to track performance. Uh, the company is called Crowdbotics. We're the defense group within Crowdbotics, and you can find me on our website, crowdbotics.com, um, or my email, which we can post with the comments or something. Um, I'll make sure that you've got it. Um, but yeah, my name's Julian, and I work with the Crowdbotics defense team. Um, and yeah, would love to chat with anybody who's interested. Would love to chat about this stuff. Always down to chat with fighter pilots. Always down to chat with you, Vader. Yeah, no, thank you again for coming on the show. And uh, thank you for being the first uh, guest on the podcast. Hopefully we yeah. have many more to follow and and we'll have you back on after a little while. Hopefully there get some go. cool updates. Uh, but yeah, so uh, Crowdbotics Defense and then uh, Julian at crowdbotics.com, right? Email? Yes, that's it. Yep. And, then, um, and then visit the uh, Kodiak Shack podcast. Uh, we uh, are kodiakshack.com. And then uh, my email is vader at kodiakshack.com. So if you want to uh, get on the show or you want to talk about some stuff or just uh, tell me how bad I am at this, uh, feel free <laughs> to uh, shoot me an email. Uh, also, disclaimer, I should have done this up front, but uh, I'm a fighter pilot by trade, geography major, so I am not a video audio uh, expert. So uh, prepare to deal with those struggles, everyone. Uh, thanks again, yeah, You got to get an intern. You got to get a Jamie. That's right. Yeah. Well, I've got a business partner, so hopefully in the future I'll have him on there and he can Google stuff and make sure uh, my math works out because geography majors are not known for their math capes. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Sweet. Vader, thanks for having me on. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, 
we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.